This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. This week, we're talking Donald Trump, Kanye West, Bibi Netanyahu, Yair Lapid, and we may even get a little reference in there to Liz Truss, <laughs> now former Prime Minister. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Um, what can I tell you, Jonathan? I mean, wow. I have, you know, I was thinking that when we started this podcast, you were sitting there all high and mighty in your kingdom of political stability over there in London, mocking, slightly mocking in your British politeness, but under the mannerisms, you know, mocking our instability in Israel. But wow, have things shifted? We pale in comparison to what's going on there. No, you are a country of solid, <laughs> reliable, dependable steadiness compared to... I mean, people are running out of comparisons. People have been sort of comparing this place to Italy. I think Britain is giving Italy certainly a good run for its money. But no, Israel is comparatively stable because what? Three people have been prime minister in the last 15 years, maybe? Yes. Or 12 years, more or less. And we've had three of those basically in three months. <laughs> so it's, you know, there will be a new one in three months. Although, as you and I speak, it may not even be a new one. It could be a return of the old one. They've, just like Bibi and his comebacks, Boris Johnson is being talked about as a candidate to succeed Liz Truss, the six-week-long Prime Minister, the Lady Jane Grey of British Prime Ministers. You can look it up if you're not as across that period as my co-host, Johnny Levy. But yeah, I mean, she resigned just uh, a couple of hours ago as you and I speak. This is incredible. I mean, look, at the end of the day, wasn't the five, you can survive being colorless or charismaless, but you can't survive incompetence. I mean, this is what it means. She can write the book on how to self-destruct in 44 days. It really yeah. is. Uh, it really is unbelievable. I wanted to suggest maybe you need a prime minister. You seem to be running out of those, and we have more than a few candidates over here. And as you, yeah, because you've you've got X, you've got current, you've got next, who might also be X. Wannabes, uh, a plenty. You know, we we yeah, can we can give you some. Yeah. No, I think um, you're right about forty four days. And 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 what's interesting is that I think it's you know if it had just been scandal. It's unlikely it would have happened this swiftly. It's because, and this is, I, I think this puts it in an unusual category, it's beyond, you know, judgments about personal behaviour, which was the issue with Boris Johnson. It's beyond sort of ideology, as you may have had over Brexit. This is about somebody, in effect, ruining your own, if you're a British voter, your personal finances. Mm. I mean, people are looking at staring down the barrel of very big mortgage payments on their homes potentially mortgage payments they will not be able to make uh, and potential losing their homes and dispossessions, repossessions, because of her actions. It's as direct as that. You know, she and her finance minister got up on September the 23rd, less, still less than a month ago, and announced a whole series of changes, uh, essentially a whole lot of giveaway tax cuts that they had no way to pay for. They were going to borrow to pay for them. And the markets just said, no way. You are If you're going to do that, we're going to charge you a fortune to borrow. That has been passed on to individual British households and families who just cannot um, face that prospect. And so the poll reversal, the numbers, and how quick it was, I think that is without precedent. This absolutely dizzying change, 35, 40 points behind. 
And I think it's because it went right into people's pockets and into their lives. And that is quite unusual for it to be that swift and that severe. And, and you know, I mean, we, we, we joke about this a little bit, but it really is a symptom of a very broken system. I mean, if, I don't know, I, I guess we, we can agree that Brexit is sort of the dividing line ever since how many? This is the fifth prime minister, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Let me, I've got an Annie to count. So he was David Cameron, then Theresa May, then Boris Johnson, then Liz so Truss. So she was the be, fourth. This is going to be the fifth. There will be a fifth. And, there will and be a fifth. do you think that they can actually hold on for a general election 2025? I mean, obviously they have a large well, majority, but but isn't it just insane? Yeah. I mean, you would say that, that constitutionally there's no obstacle as long as the one thing they all agree on is they don't want to have an election, then they've got the votes to prevent an election. So you would say you know, then turkeys are not going to vote for Christmas, as we say here, um, and therefore unlikely uh, that they will trigger the election, which could end the careers of, you know, 200 of them, according to some polls, they'll all lose their seats. So they won't, I, you know, that's not imminent. And yet you do feel this is one of these cases where they are, they cannot solve this problem. They are collapsing in on their own contradictions, as the old sort of Marxist theoreticians would have put it. I, I think you were right to mention Brexit, not just chronologically, the chaos that's been ensued, but it injected something in, almost poison into the political bloodstream, and it has made the political system sick in this country. I mean, I've been writing about this even just now, you know, as you and I sit down, that she was such an embodiment in a way of what I'm now calling Brexitism, which was the, it's not about Europe or, or being in Europe. Brexitism is about the belief that the, you can close your eyes and screw your eyes shut very white, tightly and really believe then the facts of geography and the economy will melt away. That's the Brexitism idea, which was, you know, we can reduce our ties, sever our ties in some cases with our closest neighbours and become richer because geography doesn't matter anymore. And basic rules of trade don't matter anymore. It is like someone jumping out of a building going, no, I really believe gravity is is a sort of plot by the cultural left. By the EU. And then, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and then you come crashing to the ground. Mm. And that's what's happened here. It, it wasn't about Europe, as I say, but it was this idea that, yeah, we can announce tax cuts and have no money to pay for them and everything will be fine. And all the boring old experts said, no, that won't be fine. And they've been vindicated. So I hope this might be a really big sort of cultural moment in the political culture. Maybe, by the way, not just of Britain. I think this could be a really big blow for populist movements around the world who also try and say, you know, basic laws of science and a fact are actually a liberal left conspiracy and anything can be true as long as you really believe it. Well, trust, I think, to the extent that she's not, you know, she may be just forgotten. But if she has any lasting mark on society, it may be that she becomes a kind of warning, mm -hmm. a salutary lesson, cautionary tale, that you do sometimes have to believe in boring old facts and boring old economic laws of gravity. And she tried to defy that. And, you know, the whole country is paying a really heavy price. Yeah, well, I mean, remember when we talked about her the first time and I told you she reminded me of that line they said about David Frost's career, which was much longer, one should add, right, that he rose without a trace. So it makes sense that now she reigned without a trace and she left without a trace. It's really unbelievable. There's still more than Lady Jane Grey, though, a little bit more. Yeah, she's in there till they find a successor. Yeah. They're saying they're going to be able to do that in just over a week, wow. um, eight days by next Friday. They say they should have a new name in the frame. That's wow. the... Amazing plan. That's the hope. Who knows um, what will happen? And and you know, plenty of people have learned in this drama that you should never really celebrate because plenty of anti 
trust people are now thinking, oh my God, is Boris Johnson coming back? So they're not excited about that either. Um, it's a really bleak time uh, for this country in quite a major sort of historic way. Now we have talked about, I mean, your, your reference to, you know, charisma-less and rising without trace. It's interesting, I've been thinking about political talent. In your country, you do at least have a battle of quite sort of politically able people. If, if the battle is between Yair Lapid and Bibi Netanyahu, no one's going to say those are two people who lack political chops and sort nope. of nous. I mean, they do. So I don't know. I've got to have my head so immersed in <laughs> this world. Where, how are those two slugging it out? Well, first of all, uh, let's say 11 days to countdown, right? And it's uh, it's warming up a little bit. I have been complaining on this podcast that things have been quite dormant. And this was a prolonged election period, also due to the holidays, the Jewish holidays. So now, by the way, the new thing people are saying to each other, because the Jewish holidays are quite long. So in Israel now, you say, happy after the holidays. So that is Sameach to all of you. Uh, so now, how long does that last for? When, 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 well, when does the statute than, of limitations on that run out? Uh, I think it can last for a week. About people say to each other, "Happy after the holidays." Oh, okay. So this is what we greet each other. This is how we greet each other. So now holidays are behind us. Elections are still in front of us. And um, as yep. you say, two uh, major candidates. Although we will we'll say a line or two about the defense minister Benny Gantz, who also sees himself as the qualified to be prime minister and explains how he can be. But yes, this is Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and Yair Lapid, both on the finish line. Let's talk about the week they both had. Um, both are doing something very interesting. I'll start with Yair Lapid, the current prime minister, just to make note of the fact that in his less than four months, he will already soon be dealing with three British prime ministers, but less than four months yeah. in office. And what he's doing this time is very interesting, Jonathan. What he's doing is saying, completely uh, opposite to what he did last time, is saying, I want people to vote for me and for my party, Yeshatid, and not for the block. Remember, we have two blocks, the BB block and the anti-BB block. What he did last time was to say, vote for any party you want in our block. It's a good thing if you want to vote for merits, left of the Labour Party. It's a good thing if you want to vote for, vote for Labour. You don't have to necessarily vote for me as long as we get rid of Netanyahu. What he's saying now is the exact opposite. Vote for me. There's no danger for Labour or for merits not to pass the electoral threshold. By the way, he's taking a risk, a big risk by saying that. But I want you to vote for me. He wants to be the largest party. He wants that psychological effect of the president calling him. It doesn't look that way in the polls right now. Likud is still uh, in front of him. But that is his tactic. I think it's a very interesting one. I'm not sure it's not a, an extremely risky one, but that is what he is doing. Uh, shall we cross the road to the other side or do you still want to talk about him a little bit? Yeah, and just that the overconfidence of assuming, or I'm calling it overconfidence, is, is he wrong to assume that those other smaller liberal left parties, Labour, Merits, are safe and home and dry? Or is there a risk that some of their voters vote for Lapid because they're persuaded by his logic and then those left of centre parties fall by the wayside, don't make the make the cut? You know, I, I, I think he's taking a huge risk because there's a there isn't such a great difference between him receiving 26 seats or 29 seats, but there is a huge difference if one of these parties actually doesn't pass the threshold, labor or merits, and then Benjamin Netanyahu is definitely the prime minister. But I think what he wants, and remember, Yair Lapid, a huge sensation when he exploded on the political scene a little over a decade, his highest number was 19. He never passed the 19 seats 
obviously in the polls right now, he's around 24, 25. He really wants to reach the number 30. And then no one could ask, you know, why would you be the first to actually accept the mandate to try and become prime minister, as you say. And as I, I also believe it's a very risky move. Now, Netanyahu is doing the same thing, also opposite of what he did last time. Last time he was sitting, he was pretty confident saying, you can vote for me. You can vote for uh, Bezalel Smotrich and Ben Gvir as long as you vote for anyone in the bloc. That's fine. Now, when he sees the polls, and we should mention the fact that Ben Gvir is taking a mandate from the Likud almost every week. He is now at 14. Take a minute to let that number sink. The Likud is at around 30. A few uh, months ago, he was Likud was around 35 and he was around 9. So you see that he's taking votes from him. Now Netanyahu is a bit worried about that. He's trying to pull the votes back. This um, And just on this point about the uh, mandates going from Likud to Ben Gvir, the number of projected number of seats, how do we explain that? Is that because of what we talked about in previous weeks, that Ben Gvir has sort of cleaned up his act, detoxified mm-hmm. his own brand? You famously told us he doesn't. He tells his supporters, don't say death to Arabs, say death to terrorists. Is, he, is that why people feel safe? Mm-hmm. to go to Ben Gavir, or is it because he's, you know, there's some new retail offer he's come up with that is wooing people over? Well, there are two things. First of all, let's not forget Netanyahu is his biggest supporter. He's the person who made him a member of Knesset last time around, and he was also the one who this time made sure that he will run again with Bezalel Smoltich, so no vote will be lost for that block. So it's a lot due to, you know, Netanyahu now waking up and saying, maybe I should have been a little more careful because I may have shot myself uh, in the foot with this one. But also, as you mentioned, uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is a far-right politician, now trying desperately to portray himself as a mature, cuddly version of that far-right politician, and some people are convinced. Now, let's say, we should we should pause for a minute and say, this has not been a good week for the Netanyahu bloc, and I'll explain why. First of all, because Bezalel Smotrich, who is the head of the party that Itamar ben is number two on that list, came out with his judicial reform plan, some might call it a judicial revolution. And one of the things that he says was to cancel the main clause of indictment, coincidentally, to erase it from the books uh, that Netanyahu is, is, is indicted for. So what he actually did here, was, it's a whole plan and a whole kind of revolution in the judicial system, but actually say pretty much out loud, that what he wants to do is to cancel Netanyahu's trial. Now, of course, Netanyahu distancing himself from this, saying, no, no, this isn't my plan. The trial will continue as as, as planned. But it does, you know, give those people who actually suspect that Netanyahu wants to be, his main motivation is to become prime minister again so he can cancel his trial, to think, oh, okay, this is, this is really the reason why we should go to the polls. So this has not been a good thing for Netanyahu. And also we mentioned Ben Gvir himself, pulling out a gun in, during a um, flashpoint situation in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, also giving the people who are opponents of the Netanyahu bloc a very important reminder of why they should go to the polls. I should tell you that this is getting some, in, if only you know, limited, but some interest already. People are sort of waking up to this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Jewish News, which is a newspaper here in this community, asks a very good question. It has a picture of Ben Gvir and Smotrich on its front page. Uh, and it says they hate Arabs, LGBT people, and even some Jews. They are heading for power in Israel. Jewish News asks, where's the outrage? And it tweeted this out with the slogan, with the question, is this the Israel we want? I, I've been mentioning on this podcast, I think this is going to become a big question in diaspora communities. And in a way, good for the 
Jewish news for getting sort of ahead of it rather mm-hmm. than waiting for it to happen. But when you tell me about the 14 seats, if that is, if it's that kind of number, and if you're also right, which I'm, I always believe you are, if it really is gaining a seat every we, day. We have our headline 14, for our podcast this week, yes. 14 might be the lower end of the expectations range, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it could be more than 14. Um, and, you know, if it's gaining. So anyway, even if it's 14, it's a big, big number. And the story there, as I said before, there's always a party, which is the story of the election. Mm-hmm. Usually they are the party that come third or fourth. In this case, mm-hmm. um, here's a pretty mainstream Jewish diaspora voice. I think there will be similar voices in the United States. We've talked before about how there is a next generation of very liberal American Jews whose connection with Israel is strained at best anyway. Mm -hmm. And if these people who are very easily branded as fascists and bigots, and I think that thing about, by the way, the LGBT element, a lot of people are slightly bored of the whole Palestinian-Israeli question, will nevertheless, I'm thinking about American young people on the left, they may well zero in on this, that the man is a bigot. He once said, Smotrich, I'm a proud homophobe. Ben Gvir, Arabs are my enemy. I don't enjoy being next to them, said that a few years ago. These quotes are going to really be circulated. There's going to be a whole social media, mm-hmm. you know, field day, and it's going to be very, very awkward and uncomfortable for those diaspora voices. I'm going to say one one interesting thing that I should point out, since you don't live here, and I will give you just perspective on this. Netanyahu is very careful. He meets Ben Gvir every week. He is very careful that never does a picture come out of those meetings. Moreover, this week he was in the same event with him and he refused to go on stage until Ben Gvir came down. So he knows, he understands, because he has the best political instincts in town, that if he needs to woo the votes of the soft right, he shouldn't be even seen next to Ben Gvir, but he has no problem to say Ben Gvir will be part of my government, right? So it's a it's a delicate game that he's playing here. I don't know how it will work out for him in the end, but it's important to, to note that he is going out of his way not to have uh, this picture. He understands and he knows. Now, are you ready for the crazy scenario? Remember from the people who gave you, Naftali Bennett will be... Prime Minister, I'm going to give you, you the see, crit- this is why I think you're always right, because you've got that <laughs> one. You, you've got credibility. Like Liz Trust doesn't have credibility with the financial markets. You have credibility with me on these markets because of that prediction, and, which turned out to be right. So and we know go on, lay the crazy okay, I will scenario, lay the crazy on scenario on me and everyone But else. in the same breath, I will tell you, it's not going to happen. But let's, well, who cares? I mean, it's Israeli politics. The, the, the impossible can become the inevitable. We know this, right? What has been circulating around uh, the, the political circles in recent weeks is this scenario. Israel will not, Netanyahu, of course, doesn't have the 61. Israel will again find itself staring down the barrel of six elections. People will not want to go through this. And what will happen is that Yair Lapid. The sworn enemy of Benjamin Netanyahu will say, I will become first in rotation as prime minister and he will become second. I think it's a crazy, impossible scenario because Yair Lapid has accumulated all of his, all of his credit in politics because he was an anti-Netanyahu politician. I don't see him doing this. By the way, I interviewed him today for Channel 12. I don't know if all of our listeners, most of our listeners maybe don't understand Hebrew. I'm going to let you listen because I asked him about this scenario. There is enough no's in that answer for even someone who doesn't understand Hebrew to understand what he's saying. לשבת עם הליכוד, אין לי בעיה עם הליכוד. לא יושבים עם בן אדם שיש לו שלושה כתבי אישום פליליים חמורים. 
So what he's actually saying is there is no way, no chance ever that I will sit with Netanyahu if he is cleared in his trial and this, it, the trial runs smoothly and he's, they decide he's not guilty, maybe. But until that point, there will never be a chance where I sit with Benjamin Netanyahu. But I did give you the crazy scenario for the record. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, it's also interesting to me that he goes for a conditional ruling out right. and the, as if the only barrier is the trial rather than, you know, a larger argument about the kind of direction Netanyahu threatens for the country. Well, he does call him a mean, danger for democracy and he does all that, right. but he does leave the... That should be reason enough, surely, right. to discount him, even if he is acquitted in his trial and it's all cleared up. So. Right. But Israelis, when they well, hear they, that, they know the trial's going to last for a very, very, very long time. You hear that, you say, yeah. oh, okay, 12 weeks. No, no. We're talking about years. So he's actually years. saying never, ever. Yeah. And um, look, there has been this, again, sort of things that get noticed outside the country, uh, some tensions in East Jerusalem and in the occupied territories of the West Bank. I mean, I'm used to, although I think you picked me up on this the other day, rightly, was I'm used to thinking that doesn't cut through mm -hmm. in terms of election. The elect Israeli democratic politics happens in a kind of its own bubble. Uh -huh. So what about that? Well, first of all, you're right to say there are mounting tensions in recent uh, weeks. We saw them erupt in East Jerusalem uh, last week. So one thing that's happening is a series of terror attacks on the Palestinian side against Israelis, but also recently settler violence. And that is also very unsettling for uh, the prime minister who talks about this as a, as a big problem for Israeli society. We're 11 days before elections and tensions are really building up. It's it's bubbling. The last thing that, that Lapid wants, uh, by the way, not only for political reasons, no one wants anything to explode right now, but the last thing he needs and he wants is for something to spill over and to, to create, to fall into, or to, to, to sort of percolate into the political system. Right now, everything is still held together, but it's definitely, there are definitely days of high tension. So the big news in the diaspora, I would say, outside Israel that has had people in the Jewish world, I think, talking a lot, relates to, once again, uh, anti-Semitism and, once again, some big figures, Donald Trump and Kanye West. I mean, Kanye, West is, Kanye West's remarks on this, when he on Twitter, he wrote he was going death con three against Jewish people. We had um, Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt talking about that on the podcast last week. She was in London and she was being asked about it in a few places. It was one of those quite rare moments, actually, where the where anti-Semitism sort of cut through to be a big topic of conversation. Just it's a mark of Kanye West's huge celebrity that that happened. And then there's quite interesting debate of given his documented history with mental illness, do you get, you know, should he get a free pass? And then other people noted, you know, that it's odd, isn't it? How, uh, when people do have these episodes, they don't somehow become super moderate and start, uh, voicing all these very, you know, democratic centrist things. They suddenly start talking about Jews. Um, and he talked about how, you know, Planned Parenthood was founded to control the Jew population, which he interpreted to be the lost 12 tribes of Judah, the blood of Christ, who the people known as the black race really are. I mean, this is really murky water, and most people were pretty intolerant of it. But riding to the rescue should be no none other than Donald Trump himself, who then was interviewed on a media outlet. I have to say, I was not familiar with uh, Salem News Channel, the conservative Salem News Channel, 
Uh, odd name to pick, you might think, <laughs> given its history of witch burning. But there we are, Salem News Channel. Um, and he said he had the classic drum. He goes, he hadn't really seen the rapper's reason statements. These are always his manoeuvres. I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't seen it. This interview where Kanye West was talking to Fox News host Tucker Carlson earlier this month. Hadn't really thought of him. But the crucial thing, he was really nice to me beyond anybody. He was great to me, says Trump about Kanye West. And he was really high on a guy named Donald Trump, Trump said. Remember, this is the Trump default, you know, when he was asked even about the Proud Boys. Well, they seem to like me, so that's okay. It doesn't matter what they say. The reason why all this is why Trump got dragged into this in a way is because Trump himself had been outraging people by this, I was going to say tweet, but it's on. It's not really, it's on his social media site, his own one, Truth Social, so-called, in which he did this weird thing where he excoriated American Jews and said they needed to get their act together and appreciate him the way Israeli Jews do. This, by the way, is a point he's made often, that he's much more popular in Israel than he is among American Jews. But he said they've got to get their act together and start appreciating him, quote, before it's too late. I mean, you don't have to really know a whole lot about Jewish history to know that a former leader, a man with, who commands a huge mass movement, saying to Jews, you better make nice before it's too late, how that will resonate. He um, you know, has this long history of, of invoking these old anti-Jewish stereotypes. But this, I think, is almost the very worst thing he said because of that hint of menace and threat defending Kenya West after this really florid attack on Jews and then saying, yeah. pointing his finger and saying, get on board before it's too late. To me, it's quite sinister. And, and did not take it back at all uh, in the days since. Um, we should note that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been making the rounds in um, the American media, because his book that we talked about, we discussed last week, has uh, been published in English simultaneously. And uh, this is what he had to say when he was asked about Donald Trump and, and defending him, really, saying he can't be an anti-Semite. Let's hear that. Is Donald Trump anti-Semitic? Well, you know, he, he has a, a, a Jewish son-in-law and his daughter converted to Judaism. His children, his grandchildren are raised as Jews. So I don't think so. But I think it reflects his frustration, which happens to many politicians when they feel they don't get uh, all the credit they deserve for the things they did. Well, we've heard uh, we've heard Netanyahu defend Trump in the past. By the way, I was not asked if I remember correctly about what Trump actually said to him about him. We we heard that in the Barack Ravid tapes that we uh, brought in a few months ago. But this is uh, again the uh, former and perhaps future leader of Israel really taking sides in a in a debate that is tearing not only I think American jury but also American society and, and standing right next to uh, Donald Trump and and really defending him. It's interesting the calculation that he's making there. Um, I don't think that you know gives him any juice in the domestic fight he's in. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have thought, mm -hmm. unless you'll tell me. Unless it's it's always good for him to remind Israelis of how close he was to Donald Trump. Is that what he's thinking? Is that a vote winner? It certainly won't endear him to American Jews. I wouldn't have thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think that. Um he put out all kinds of clips from these conversations during the week. Uh, I think Israelis are always very impressed by the way he handles himself in English. And uh, and I think so. I think that he wants to remind them of anything of his good relationship with the uh, former American uh, uh, president. I think that's important for him. I don't know, again, how many votes that will get him right now in the in the sort of final stretch that we are in. But for him, it's, it's all right now. It's all about internal politics.
Time, I think, for our awards, mm-hmm. uh, need Quite a lot of stiff competition. <laughs> I was going to, I mean, I know we've talked about him a bit already, but I was going to nominate Bibi Netanyahu for this beautiful moment of television. I, I, I love it because <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you're, there will be people with an encyclopedic knowledge of the West Wing. I feel sure something like this did happen in the West Wing. I know there was one episode where President Jed Bartlett pretended he didn't know the camera light was on but it was on and it went live and he but he very deliberately pretended he thought he was speaking untelevised there's a, it's not quite the same the key thing is though i want people to hear it but the key bit is a moment where bb appears to have be having trouble with his earpiece and when you watch the video you realize there was no trouble he basically takes the earpiece out of his ear but why do we hear it if you are prime minister if you become prime minister again Will Israel uh, be uh, more fulsome in its support for, for Ukraine, who obviously is struggling against Vladimir Putin and, and Russia right now? Uh, much in the same way Israel was struggling uh, after one invasion after another. Uh, it, did, did, you, uh, take, did you take it out? IFP's loss? All right. So that's the former prime minister, perhaps next prime minister, on Morning Joe, and Joe Scarborough's talking to him and asks him a tough question about, you know, are you going to be any better in terms of Israel's position on Ukraine and Vladimir Volodymyr Zelensky wanting Israel's help? We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. And Israel hasn't stepped up, runs the critique, is would a new Netanyahu government be any different? And at that point, you see him in the video, he goes into the earpiece and basically sort of jiggles it so it comes out. <laughs> and then he can, oh, sorry, I can't hear you. You know, I just thought it was a fantastic bit of political chutzpah, really, because it's a, it's a bit of a tr- cheap trick to pretend you can't hear when you're asked a really legitimate question. Yep. Uh, we have to add, by the way, that he, that he did say, I, I was quite, quite surprised by this, he did uh, uh, give a compliment to the Lapid government, which is very rare for Netanyahu, especially 11 days before elections, in which he said that he thinks they're actually, uh, the way that they're handling this, you know, we talked a lot about the tightrope walking between Ukraine and Russia and all of the security interests that Israel has, is actually, they're actually doing an okay job which was quite surprising. But yes, the earpiece thing was funny. We should add to that the fact that Ukraine, again, asked uh, Israel for its uh, help in, in defense systems, in aerial defense systems. Again, uh, Secretary of Defense Gantz and Yair Lapid himself today in the interview with me also said that he understands that he can give all kinds of other systems that have to do with uh, warning, but he can't give anything else. Israel can't give anything else because of the sensitivity. This is becoming again an issue and also in this uh, election campaign. But you, you mentioned chutzpah. Can I just, I know that we usually have one, but I would want to add one no, more. I like a, in, this, in this election season, we should have yes, rival we should, nominees. We should have some contest. more. We should have, it would be a bit of a chutzpah of me to add another one, but still I should. Yitzhak Golknop the leader of the United Torah Judaism, I said it wasn't a great week for the Netanyahu bloc. This is that this adds to this because what he said on television uh, um, in the, our, our program, Meet the Press, he said, we was asked about course studies. We talked about this again in the podcast, English and math and all kinds of basic studies that the Haredim, parts of the ultra-Orthodox community don't study. And he said, and I quote, math and English have never done anything to advance the state of Israel. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> which is nice in a country that really prides itself on, among other things, high tech. But never mind. Math and English have never done anything to advance Israel. His version of what have the Romans ever done for us? I mean, this right. is really I, this is really chutzpah. I think it it does rival your Netanyahu earpiece story. It really does. Yeah, I think it may be better. I think I'm happy, very happy to go for a split <laughs> decision. Maybe we can throw it over to the members of the British Conservative Party. They can have several <laughs> rounds of voting to decide whether it's the Haredi guy who thinks that this, <laughs> the high-tech land of science has never benefited from maths. What about a Mensch uh, nominee? Who can we uh, crown this week? Well, you know, we did discuss the brave women in, of Iran two weeks ago. So I would uh, kind of, on the cusp of that, add into that uh, El Nazri Kaubi, who is the Iranian uh, gymnast who came to a competition without her hijab, uh, we should note that everyone thought this was a, a sign of protest. I think it still is. Uh, but when she returned to uh, Tehran and the opposition says under uh, duress, she did say that she forgot her hijab. We choose to believe the first version. And I think she deserves uh, the Mensch Award. And again, a good opportunity to give it to uh, all of the brave uh, men and especially women of this country who are still in protest, still against the Ayatollahs. Yeah, I heard uh, somebody from Iran this week talk, saying this is the battle front now in the global battle for women's rights, and mm -hmm. the, the you know, but it goes uh, even deeper than that because it really could be um, what uh, finally upends this regime in Iran. Yeah, I wasn't buying this um, d this version that oh she just forgot it. That felt to me like something somebody would say if they had been heavily leaned on. The important thing was that she did it. And the action there, I'm going to, I like you, I'm going to go with that as being more important than the word. So, um, the, yeah, she and the and the women of Iran who we've uh, awarded as mentions of the week before, happy for them to be mentioned again. This is a really, really important story. I agree. But there's also a small mention before we uh, head uh, out of this, uh, of this program. I would want to mention that uh, Jonathan Friedland can now retire because he has reached the peak of his career Ooh, in being compared on. to Mel Brooks. And now uh, let's admit, let's admit that Mel Brooks is the <laughs> is the king of the Jews, right? I mean, he is the king of the Jews in modern time. We don't ha we don't we're not arguing on, on this. And and you have been compared to him. We should say that your play, Jews in their own words, what it got very good reviews. One of them was in the Economist, and I will quote one line from that review of the play. It goes like this. In a chorus line number written by Mr. Friedland that channels Mel Brooks. This is what was written about you this week. So I think there's there ain't no mountain higher. I just think, you know, where do you, uh, well, where do you go from here? I'm, where do you go from here? I'm very, very touched that you should mention that. Because actually, actually, for me, it was one of my favorite bits about doing the show. Because as you know, it was a kind of journalistic exercise. It's all based on interviews. But there were a few bits I had to write, including a song lyric. And I've never written a song lyric before. And there there are people in the audience, you know, tapping their foot to, it was the Jews that did it, <laughs> which is a spoof on anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Uh, and exactly who I had, I had in my mind was either Tom Lehrer or Mel Brooks. And so for The Economist to say that, I, you know, look, I'm delighted by that, delighted you should mention it. And I um, should say in his we, modesty, it's not Jonathan who sent me that review. It's one of my friends who sent it to me and said, did you see what they wrote about him? So yes, yeah. so I had to mention it this time. Well, I was very, very chuffed by that indeed. I should mention that when you and I speak next week, I will be in the United States because just while we're you know, doing the promotion stuff. My book, The Escape Artist, was published in the US this week, and I'm going there to talk about it a bit, doing an event in New York. You can, if you look at me on Twitter, look me up on Twitter, you'll see 
details of that event. If you're an unholy listener, do make yourself known to me in the audience in Manhattan. I think it's Thursday, October 27th. It'll be nice to see you and say hello. But you and I will pick up this conversation. Who knows who will be the prime minister of this country? The prime minister of your country will just be a matter of days away from being well, well sort, it's of, sort of resolved, maybe. Right. We're not holding our breath. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, you know, the world is constantly up in the air each time you and I speak. So let's uh, give our thanks to our stable, our, our, our pillars of stability. Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Enrom Atik, Nir Bashan, and we shall meet next week. Oh, Jonathan, you have to remind our audience to... I do. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram, where we are Unholy Podcast and spread the word anywhere you can, including, as I say, next week, if you're in New York, in person. You and I will speak then. And, uh, well, let's just hold on to your hats. You know, <laughs> buckle up. It's going to be quite a turbulent This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.